You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. He will, of course, be defeated, but in the meantime, what will become of France? She will be ravaged and perhaps even partitioned. As for the Emperor, it is quite inconceivable that he is not aware that his situation is very different indeed from what he had originally expected. Everything in France has changed since his departure, for the expectations of the people have risen sharply since then. What direction is he heading in now? He does not even know himself. For instance, he is appealing for the support of the men of the revolution, and yet fears them above all others. He is heading in the wrong direction. His step is uncertain and illogical. He's entirely out of his depth. And why is he so blind to the fact that the only real feeling he inspires in the people is fear itself? Armand de Cullincourt, 1815. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 37, Napoleon's Hundred Days, Part 2. On March 20th, 1815, as Napoleon Bonaparte seized power in France for the second time, various lackeys, cronies, and toadies of the restored emperor descended on the Tuileries Palace in Paris to try to get a piece of the new government. One of them was a thin 55-year-old man with monstrous sideburns, Joseph Fouché. Fouché had served in Napoleon's governments before, and was at the center of skullduggery during the French Revolution, even before Napoleon came to power. On this occasion, Napoleon's hasty restoration, the emperor offered Fouché the position of Minister of Police. This would be the third time Fouché had held that office. He graciously accepted. Napoleon, however, was not tremendously enthusiastic. He'd had problems with Fouché before, such as in 1809 when the police minister, who thought Napoleon's wars had gone on long enough, started negotiating secretly with the British. Nevertheless, even though Fouché was a bit untrustworthy, he was an excellent police minister, having quietly crushed countless plots against the emperor over the years. And Napoleon needed all the competent men he could get to stock his new government. 
One of Napoleon's first orders to Fouché was to start, as quietly as possible, reaching out to contacts in London to see if there was any hope of negotiating with the British. In other words, if there was any hope that his restoration to power wouldn't result in all of his old enemies immediately invading France to try to take him out. Fouché met with the British representative in Paris, Marshall. Fouché said that Napoleon was, quote, prepared to receive any proposition from the English government honorable to both countries, which would ensure a solid and lasting peace. But Fouché was talking out of both sides of his mouth. At roughly the same time, he told another government minister, that man has not altered one bit and has returned as despotic, as set on conquest, in fact, as crazy as ever. Fouché knew that the British and the rest of the Allies weren't going to let Napoleon off the hook and they didn't. On March 25th, the Allies, whose representatives were still meeting in Vienna, signed a new treaty of coalition and declared war on France. The message couldn't have been clearer. No deals, Bonaparte. Fouché knew full well that Napoleon wasn't going to last that long. Behind the scenes, Fouché started negotiating with representatives of the Allies to remove Napoleon and set up some sort of replacement government, possibly with Fouché himself as prime minister. Fouché said to a friend, quote, Let him win one or two battles. He will finally lose the big one, and that is when our role will begin in earnest. Exactly who Fouché talked to and what he was plotting isn't exactly clear, but he does seem to have talked to the Russians, and he also opened secret negotiations with the Austrian government, suggesting a restoration of the Bourbon kings was soon in the cards. Napoleon quickly found out about Fouché's intrigues. Various other ministers who didn't trust Fouché kept warning the emperor that he was going rogue and undermining the regime. In May, Napoleon finally called Fouché on the carpet. In a room full of witnesses, Napoleon exposed the evidence of Fouché's treachery. He shouted, You are a traitor, Fouché. I ought to have you hanged. You can imagine what happened next. Except it didn't happen. Napoleon, who'd already had problems with this guy before, who had been warned by his people that Fouché was undermining him, did absolutely nothing. He yelled at him and then let the matter drop. Fouché was not hanged. He wasn't arrested or had his considerable estates seized. Napoleon didn't even dismiss him as police minister. Napoleon confided to another one of his lackeys, It is simply not in Fouché's best interest to betray me. Then he went back to work. The whole incident just kind of fizzled. I tell you this story because it's totally emblematic of how slipshod and incompetent Napoleon was getting in his final months in power. In years past, and especially since he'd crowned himself Emperor of France in December 1804, Napoleon was a fearsome dictator who had pretty much anybody who plotted against him ruthlessly crushed. If, like most people, you generally like having your head attached to the rest of your body, you basically didn't do something that displeased Napoleon when he was at the height of his power. But now, in 1815, after his return from Elba, Bonaparte was confronted with unmistakable evidence of the treachery of one of his own ministers, and he just let the matter drop. It would be one thing if this was the only example of Napoleon's sloppiness during the Hundred Days, but it isn't. In fact, most of this episode is going to be about how Napoleon botched one thing or another. How he was always a day late and a dollar short, and had just how unprepared he was on the eve of what Fouché called the big one, the battle that would decide his fate. So join me now as we delve deeper into the astonishing dumpster fire that was Napoleon's Hundred Days. 
Good evening. I'd like to make one very quick announcement before delving into tonight's episode. Many of you know that in addition to doing this podcast, I'm also an author. I write fiction. Type my name, Sean Munger, into Amazon, and you should find my author page pretty quickly. I'd like to announce that I have not one, but two books coming out sometime soon. Exact release dates haven't been set yet, but it'll probably be in the first two months of 2019. The first book is a novel called Jake's 88, which is a coming-of-age story set in the 1980s. Dare I even call it a romance? But it's absolutely steeped in the pop culture and headspace of the late 80s, a decade that many of us remember fondly. If you were alive then, if you were young then, you might like Jake's 88, and if you weren't alive, you'll probably still like it because, of course, well, the 80s were awesome. The second book, Unrelated, is much darker. It's called Eyes of War, and I co-wrote it with historian Lucas Erickson. It's about the Pacific War, meaning the conflict between the United States and Japan in World War II, and centers around the grisly practice, which was widespread during the war, of Americans taking trophies, particularly skulls, of dead Japanese. If it sounds grisly, it is. Eyes of War is as much horror as it is historical fiction, and it's not for everybody. But these two books are coming, again, most likely in the first two months of 2019. Not sure I can get Jake's 88 done for, done in time for Christmas. It's possible, just possible, that I might do some second decade off-topic episodes around these books, at least one, maybe more, uh, focusing on the history of the 1980s, and then perhaps another one dealing with the Pacific War and the historical background of Eyes of War. So these things are coming. I'll announce the dates as they get solidified. And now back to Napoleon. As I was researching and writing this episode, it occurred to me that Napoleon is actually pretty mysterious, which is kind of incredible, given that he's one of the very few historical figures from the early 19th century that has significant name recognition among non-historians. We've all heard of Napoleon. Most of us can imagine what he looked like, especially with his hand inside his tunic and that big bicorn hat, but explaining him what he was about is actually kind of hard. Was Napoleon a hero or a villain? Was he part of the French Revolution, or did he betray the French Revolution? How is he remembered in France today? These questions are surprisingly hard to get your head around. Consequently, when he shows up in history books or podcasts, it's often a lot easier to focus on the aspect of his reign that is clearly cognizable, his role as a military commander, and the battlefield history of the Napoleonic era. As a result, the subject of Napoleon bores a lot of people, because as soon as he pops up, hand in his coat and wearing his dumb little hat, you know what you're going to see. Maps, red arrows and blue arrows, cannons rolling along in those big wheels, hard-to-pronounce place names like Austerlitz and Eilau, and stuff that military history geeks obsess over, but not a whole lot of other people. Napoleon is often compared to another European dictator, Adolf Hitler. The Germans are, today, embarrassed and shamed by the memory of Hitler. That's understandable, considering the horrific magnitude of Hitler's crimes, especially the Holocaust. If you go to Germany, which I have done on numerous occasions, the one thing you'll find Germans don't want to talk about is Hitler. It's different, though, in France. I admit I've not spent anything even close to the time in France as I have in Germany, but Napoleon is not a taboo subject, far from it he's commemorated and celebrated at least as much as he's denounced. His tomb in Paris at the Invalides is a huge tourist attraction. There are plaques commemorating various locations associated with him. He's kind of a folk hero. And yet Napoleon was a pretty brutal dictator. 
He squelched the freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, looted the public treasury of France, mostly for the benefit of his family and his cronies, and he killed millions of people all over Europe. Why was all of this warfare, including the Hundred Days, serving some greater good? Napoleon was not an ideological dictator, at least not in the sense that many of the other dictators we're familiar with throughout history are. Mao Zedong in China, Lenin and Stalin in Soviet Russia, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Franco in Spain, and Hitler, all of these people were highly ideological, and their dictatorships were generally in the service of their ideological programs for what they thought was a better China, Russia, Cambodia, or Germany, however nightmarish and horrific those visions turned out to be. Napoleon, though, doesn't fit in that box easily. Yeah, there are the trappings of the French Revolution around him, the tricolor flags, the idea of sovereignty coming from the French people, the French nation, rather than from a king. But operationally, as a dictator, Napoleon resembles much more closely the kind of totally self-serving dictators who are mainly in it for their own personal power, rather than zealots of one stripe or another trying to transform the world. The dictators I'm talking about now are people like Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines, or Saddam Hussein of Iraq, people more likely to buy another gold-plated Rolls-Royce for their kids, or, in the second decade equivalent, a gilded state coach, rather than throw millions of people into death camps to achieve some kind of ideological objective. This aspect of Napoleon is never more starkly clear than it is in a hundred days. As should be clear from the last episode of this show, Napoleon didn't return to France in the late winter of 1815 to rescue France from the Bourbons, or to save the French people from the unthinkable disaster of not being at war with most of Europe for at least a couple of months. No, Napoleon escaped from Elba and seized power in Paris solely for his own personal goals. He wanted to be emperor again. He was in it for himself and himself alone. Take, for example, the establishment of a new constitution for France. This was called the Additional Act for the Constitutions of the Empire, or sometimes known as the Charter of 1815. This document was drawn up pretty hastily in the middle of April 1815, mostly by political philosopher and noted liberal Benjamin Constant, who Napoleon appointed a member of the Council of State. On the face of it, the additional act looked pretty good, and it seemed like Bonaparte had changed his tune. When he came back to power, Napoleon knew he couldn't simply turn back the clock to the halcyon days of 1804 when he held absolute power. There had to be some kind of sop to the French people and the rights that they, not unreasonably, thought they had fought the whole bloody French Revolution to protect. The additional act, though, was little more than a sop. It theoretically promised freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and abolished slavery in the French Empire. Slavery had been reinstituted under Louis XVIII. But if you look behind the additional act, you would see, guess what, the hand of Napoleon pretty much everywhere. He still had the power to appoint or dismiss the Chamber of Peers, a body kind of like the House of Lords in England, whose members were hereditary nobles. Napoleon could dismiss various chambers of state whenever he wanted. He could appoint judges. He held unlimited pardon power. So the additional act wasn't all that democratic. But still, Napoleon wasn't happy. After meeting with Constant, he said this, quote, they are weakening me, tying my hands. They ask what has become of the emperor's famous firm hand, which France needs now in order to master Europe. They can talk to me all they want about their concepts of goodness, abstract justice, and natural laws. But the first real law is necessity. 
while the most essential form of justice is national safety. End quote. Another cabinet minister, Antoine Lavalette, remarked, quote, Do not rely on this liberal constitution which he appears willing enough to give us today. Once at the head of a victorious army again, he will soon have forgotten it. End quote. It seems that Napoleon was pretty eager to get all this constitution stuff sewn up as quickly and cleanly as possible. The additional act was announced on April 22, 1815. Napoleon quickly announced that there would be a plebiscite, a national vote, where the people of France would have their say on the new constitution. On June 1st, the emperor celebrated the results of the plebiscite. Votes in favor of the additional act, 1,532,357. Votes against, 4,802. Yes, that's right, 99.9% of the French people had voted yes to Napoleon's new constitution. Rigged plebiscites were among the oldest and most transparent tools in Napoleon's bag of tricks. He'd done it before. In 1802, he had the French people vote, put air quotes around vote, on whether they agreed with his appointment for life as first consul. Of course they did, with another 99% landslide. In 1804, he tried it again, this time asking whether the French people agreed with his decision of turning France into an empire. Votes in favor... 3,572,329. Votes opposed, 2,579. All of these votes were a sham from start to finish. Napoleon didn't give a rat's rear end about the rights of the French people, or freedom of the press, or who should be appointing judges, or how the various chambers of state ought to work. I guarantee you he wouldn't even have bothered with the additional act and the rigged vote if he thought there was any way he could avoid it. Reading about Napoleon's words and actions, during the time between his accession on March 20, 1815, and the time he left Paris for the front on June 12, it's hard to escape the conclusion that he viewed this kind of thing as a distraction. But come on, we're talking about creating a constitution here. What could be more important for a nation that's just re-establishing itself, and especially one that's just suffered its second change of government in 13 months? So what was Bonaparte doing, if not paying attention to the important stuff that would improve the lives of the French people, which was, you know, ostensibly what he was supposed to be doing? The answer's very simple. He was preparing for war. In researching this episode, I came across a statistic that spoke volumes about Napoleon's Hundred Days, why they happened, and where his priorities were. Historians have analyzed all the letters, decrees, and orders that Napoleon issued between March 21st, when he came to power, and the second week of June, when he left for what would become the Battle of Waterloo. During that time, 95% of all the stuff he wrote had to do with war preparations. 95%. And the other 5% was at least indirectly related to war preparations. For example, in order to cut down most of France's nationally owned forests, to raise money for war, and to increase the amount of lumber on hand. Why? To build military infrastructure and service fuel for the army. To be sure, Napoleon's main business was war. Unlike Hitler, he was a military professional who achieved political power later in his career. Hitler, who moonlighted quite badly as a military commander, especially on the Eastern Front, gained control of the military only as a result of his political power. And to be sure, Napoleon knew he couldn't do anything for France unless he beat the existential threat to his power, which was the Allies coming to take him out. But the Napoleon of 1815, 
the period of the Hundred Days, was not the red-hot wonder he'd been in the previous decade. People around him, those lackeys and toadies he relied on, certainly noticed he wasn't at his best. He seemed fidgety and pale, totally the opposite of his commanding presence in years past. His suicide attempt the year before, you remember Napoleon took poison in the last episode, that left him with a drooling condition, and he was constantly wiping spit from the corner of his mouth with a handkerchief. He was paunchy and overweight. He dressed badly. Apparently most of the time you could see his underwear. He looked sloppy. Far from being the fearsome dictator or the awesome conqueror of half of Europe, Napoleon in the spring of 1815 was actually a pretty pathetic figure. That didn't mean, though, that he couldn't still do plenty of damage. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Let's talk about money. I don't often crunch numbers on this show, but a glimpse at Napoleon's financial picture is actually really interesting and shows just how much trouble he was in in the run-up to Waterloo. Try as he might, there was no way Napoleon could field the army he needed to stay in power and to save his neck without a mountain of cash. When he first returned to power in late March 1815, Napoleon sent some of his ministers to figure out exactly how much money France had in the treasury. On April 14th, after a hasty audit, the ministers of Treasury and Finance, those were two separate departments, marched up to the Tuileries Palace and gave their report. It must have given Bonaparte some indigestion. When King Louis XVIII skedaddled, he'd left 50 million francs in the Treasury. That sounds like a lot, but the national budget for 1815, King Louis' budget drawn up before Napoleon came back, called for spending 298 million francs. That was for a country that had largely been disarmed by the Allies and was expected to remain at peace. Napoleon, by contrast, had called for the immediate creation of eight army corps. Each one of those corps, to equip them, clothe them, feed them, and get them where they needed to be, would cost 40 million francs. That's 320 million francs right there. To keep one army in the field would cost 40 million a year. Plus, Napoleon proposed creating and calling up a National Guard, mainly to put down rebellions against his rule, which were flaring up everywhere. That's another $24 million to clothe and equip these guys, and to get them on site. In 1812, the year Napoleon launched his war on Russia, the French state spent 876 million francs, mostly on the military. They didn't have any problem raising that amount of money, but that was 1812 when Napoleon owned or controlled a hell of a lot more real estate and had various vassal countries like Belgium paying him tribute. Indeed, Napoleon expropriated hundreds of millions of francs a year from conquered countries. In 1815, France had no conquered or puppet countries sending money, and no territories to loot or exploit. Raising taxes wouldn't work. For one thing, the French people were already restive enough. Let's not tempt them even farther with open revolt. 
For another, France's economy had been destroyed by years of war. There just wasn't much cash left out there to get. Napoleon had another problem. In addition to the money it would take to raise a new army, it turns out his government already had 440 million francs worth of debts related to previous military expenditures. For example, unpaid government contracts for army provisions. If you were, for example, a blacksmith in France in 1812, and you got a government contract to make horseshoes for the French army, the government wouldn't pay you all at once. You'd deliver the shoes and get paid over time. The repayment times on a lot of these contracts were coming up in 1815, and Napoleon understood he couldn't just renege. If you're that blacksmith, and Napoleon comes to you saying again, I need shoes for the army, you're not going to do it unless the government continues to pay its bills on time, right? The hits just kept coming. Remember how I said that the ministers found Louis had left behind 50 million francs in the treasury? Well, turns out that that was wrong. When they took a second look at the accounts, they found there was only 700,000 in there, not 50 million. Oops. France was basically broke. Napoleon had to resort to some pretty drastic measures to try to cough up some dough. There was a special war tax passed, which was supposed to raise 60 million. The French government took out a loan for 150 million. Great, more debt. And Napoleon started selling off state-owned land and forests as fast as possible. That would scare up maybe, oh, $80 million and change, but at the cost of glutting the market with real estate and driving down prices, further depressing the French economy. Bonaparte also tightened the belt to the extent he could. For one thing, he pretty much canceled the French Navy. He actually wrote exact words, So long as this crisis lasts, it really does not matter much whether or not we have a navy. After getting clowned at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, the French Navy hadn't been worth much anyway. But to cut costs, Napoleon had its last five ships put into dry dock. The naval minister, left with nothing to do, started drinking heavily. You can't blame him. These money problems were obviously closely related to Napoleon's problems in raising the men needed to create his army. It would have been one thing if he had a solid base of support out there in the countryside, and if he could expect, when he called up every able-bodied man in France, at least most of them would answer the call. But he couldn't count on this. Many towns and villages had mayors who were opposed to Napoleon, and didn't much like sending more of their young men to get chewed up in the meat grinder of his armies. Napoleon was forced to replace a large number of these local officials, but it didn't really solve his problem. The basic problem was that France was almost running dry when it came to able-bodied men. Although large numbers of Frenchmen had served in Napoleon's armies throughout the many years of war that preceded 1815, and many thousands died in the various battles and campaigns, Napoleon's armies before 1815 were remarkably multinational. As with money, those conquered territories and the ones that paid tribute to him made all the difference. Recruits were drawn from all parts of Napoleon's empire. Indeed, when it came to sheer numbers, he tried not to rely heavily on the French populace when he could get other countries to do his dying for him. But the Russian campaign was the high point of this kind of recruiting. The later war years of 1813 and 1814 saw very heavy losses among French soldiers. And these were also the years when France's economy truly went down the crapper. And it wasn't just losses to battle or disease. In the spring of 1814 alone, 85,000 men deserted Napoleon's army, deciding it was pointless to fight for him anymore. In 1815, Napoleon's plans for raising a new army, 
He wanted 300,000 troops to fight the Allies in Belgium. His plans involved getting these 85,000 deserters back into uniform and happily marching off to another foreign battlefield to fight for him again. Not bloody likely. In the end, Napoleon resorted to a tried-and-true tactic used by the British to stock the Royal Navy. Press gangs. In May 1815, as conscription numbers proved thin, Napoleon personally ordered the creation of quote-unquote mobile columns of 125 men each, basically kidnap gangs that were supposed to go around the countryside rounding up deserters, or really anyone they could find, bonking them on the head and dragging them off to an assembly center where they'd be given a uniform, if the uniforms had arrived, and a musket, if the muskets had arrived. Napoleon hoped he could round up 120,000 guys this way, with varying degrees of difficulty. In reality, he got less than 80,000 through the press gangs. This kind of thing, Napoleon having a sad about stuff not going the way he wanted, kept happening over and over again. Musket production was a problem. In the towns of Malberge and Charleville, for instance, the guns weren't getting produced because the workers at the factories hadn't been paid in six weeks. Saddles and bridles for horses weren't getting where they needed to go, which meant horses weren't ready for battle. At Versailles, there were supposed to be 8,000 horses all gussied up and ready to go. In reality, there were only 2,800. There were a total of 211,800 former French soldiers, deserters, reserves, or men on leave, who got call-up orders. By kickoff time in mid-June, only 52,000 of these actually showed up. Napoleon raged, shook his fists, browbeat his ministers, and sent angry letters demanding this and that. Sometimes he got what he wanted. Most of the time, he just pretty much had to suck it up and deal with the situation. It's actually kind of amazing that he managed to field any sizable army at all. In the end, during his 1815 campaign, Napoleon had an army consisting of a total of 284,090 troops. Of that total, 178,929 were available to fight the Allies. The rest were left behind in defensive roles, or putting down revolts. Keep in mind he had 600,000 when he invaded Russia in 1812. Those days were over. Even Napoleon's social life was much diminished from the glory days in the previous decade. In years past, the emperor had enjoyed all kinds of glittering company from all over Europe entertaining various crowned heads, many crowned by him, at Fontainebleau or the various other palaces. Big dinner parties and balls with gallons of booze and miles-long tables mounded with exotic foods were a staple of high living in the second decade, at least among royals and aristocracy. In 1815, there were a lot fewer of these kinds of parties, although Napoleon dined pretty lavishly by modern standards, even with his immediate family. The flashy affairs now tended toward public lunches, where he'd invite literary, artistic, or theatrical celebrities of Paris. But on the whole, the big dinner parties and dances were finished. There was a kind of hollowness about Napoleon's second stint as emperor, kind of like a low-budget sequel to a big movie, where so only some of the cast members come back, and it's just not the same as it was before. This is the sense I get time and time again about Napoleon's Hundred Days. It just wasn't like the way it was before, and Napoleon, whenever I observe him in this story, seems kind of lost and adrift in a role that he thinks he has to play and is destined to play, but it's not really very satisfying. I wonder how often during this period Napoleon thought about the glory days, such as his coronation in December 1804, or the Battle of Austerlitz, generally thought of as his most brilliant victory. 
And I really wonder if looking around the Tuileries Palace, which in 1815 was obviously not what it used to be, if he wondered, is this really worth it? Or is this the best I can do? I also wonder how well-formed his thinking was about his future. Militarily, he clearly had a plan in mind. We'll talk more about that in the next episode. But as soon as reports started coming in that British and Prussian troops were building up in Belgium, the plan seems to have been for Napoleon to advance quickly, smash the enemy armies before they could invade France, and buy time to raise more men to go finish off Austria, at least, and maybe Russia. This plan seems clear enough. But beyond that, what was the plan? Was there a plan? Bonaparte had to know that his enemies, particularly the British, simply wouldn't give up as long as he was still sitting in the big chair in Paris. It's not like he could invade England. His best chance to do that in 1803 was long gone. And you all know from this very podcast what happened when he tried to invade Russia. He surely wasn't going to try that again. So what was the plan? Just survive? Hang on as long as possible, fighting constant, desperate engagements, and hope the Brits, Prussians, and Russians just got tired of trying to destroy him? That doesn't seem very realistic. France was broke and running on fumes when it came to usable soldiers, so how much longer could he honestly hope to hang on? He had to have thought about this. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm crediting Napoleon with too much self-reflection. Clearly, he was a narcissist, and I admit I do not understand narcissistic personalities. On one level, as long as all of Europe was paying attention to him, whether the attention was positive or negative, he may have felt satisfied. Still, not being that kind of person myself, it's hard for me to imagine not having a moment of self-awareness where you realize, you know, maybe something went terribly wrong here. This is what surprised me about Napoleon. I actually find him kind of pitiable. There were some subtle signs back in the Russian campaign that he really didn't want to have to go through with that war, which suggests that he knew on some level that it was going to be a disaster. There are fewer signs in the story of the Hundred Days that he felt that way, but as a paunchy, prematurely aged guy with a drooling problem and who goes around with his underwear showing, it's kind of hard not to feel sorry for him. The hollowness and missteps of Napoleon's Hundred Days are perfectly symbolized by the grand public ceremony that he engineered in Paris on June 1, 1815. The occasion ostensibly was to announce the results of the plebiscite, the rigged vote, as you remember, to proclaim the new constitution, the additional act. Running true to form, Napoleon turned it into a ceremony that was all about him, and an excuse to browbeat the French nation yet again on the eve of another war he was asking them to fight for him. To be sure, there was quite a turnout. Several hundred thousand people came out into the streets of Paris that morning, lining the banks of the Seine and even taking to boats and barges on the river to get a view of the reviewing stand. A few thousand of Napoleon's troops, the most professional ones who actually had, you know, uniforms and muskets and could be counted on not to desert, marched past the École Militaire, the very academy where Napoleon had learned his trade decades before. Bands played and trumpets blared. It was an unusually hot day, so there were a lot of fans waving in the audience. Finally, at 11 o'clock a.m., a hundred cannons started booming to announce the departure of the emperor from the Tuileries Palace. This procession was a big deal. Napoleon was riding in the same golden coach driven by eight white horses that he'd used at his coronation in 1804. One can imagine him looking out the windows and doing the little royal wave that Queen Elizabeth made famous. The coach wasn't the only thing recycled from the coronation. Napoleon made something of a stir when he got out of the carriage in front of the reviewing stand, 
and everybody saw that he was wearing the red and white robes he'd worn at his coronation, which included ermine fur and heron feathers. If you've never seen what Napoleon's coronation outfit looked like, you gotta see it to believe it. I'll put a picture of it on the website for this episode. When all done up, the outfit is said to have weighed 80 pounds. It had tassels and gold fringe like curtains. The costume had evidently been packed away in several wooden chests packed with camphor, sort of the second decade equivalent of mothballs, and it had been stored in the basement of the Louvre for 10 years. Well, Napoleon wanted to wear it again, so he sent someone down there to fish it out and get it looking nice. There were two problems with clowning around in the coronation getup. The first was that the robes were custom-tailored for Napoleon ten years earlier. The Napoleon of 1815 was considerably fatter than the rather svelte fellow who got his noggin crowned by himself in Notre Dame Cathedral in 1804. Wearing it this second time, the seams were literally about to pop. The second problem was that this whole thing was supposed to be about proclaiming France's new constitution, with, you know, rights and a parliament and stuff like that. Napoleon really didn't give a damn about any of that. I think we've beaten that horse to death in this episode. But the least he could do would be to pretend that this was a bold new day for the French nation, instead of making it all about him. Well, you should know by now that Napoleon can't ever avoid making everything all about him. In addition to the costume gaffe, Napoleon also managed to bungle the ceremony itself. Originally, the plan was to celebrate the plebiscite, you know, the one that was pretty transparently rigged, They were going to have 30,000 Electoral College delegates engage in a quote-unquote debate about the new constitution and then vote to approve it. At the last minute, Napoleon canceled the debate, even though it too was going to be rigged, and he reduced the number of delegates to 500. When the representative of this slimmed-down kangaroo parliament stepped forward to give his speech in front of Napoleon, it went something like this, quote, A new contract has been formed between the nation and your majesty. What do all these allied kings want with us, arrayed before us with their armies, drawn up for a war which so astounds Europe and afflicts humanity? By what act of ours, by what violation have we provoked their vengeance and aggression? If they force us to fight, then let one great cry resound in every heart. Let us march on the enemy. Victory will follow our eagles, and our enemies who have counted on divisions within our ranks will soon regret having provoked us. End quote. If that sounds like Napoleon himself wrote the speech, it's because he did. The original speech contained this line, We have rallied to you because we hope that you have brought to us from your retirement the full repentance that one might expect from a great man. Of course, Napoleon would have none of that. He turned the speech instead into a pep rally for the upcoming war. When Napoleon himself rose to speak, straining the seams of his coronation outfit, he said much the same. Rah, rah, go France, the Allies will pay, blah, 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 not direct quotes, but you get the idea. It was a pretty dull and lifeless speech. The applause was decidedly subdued. By now, the French people were pretty tired. They were tired of war and very tired of Napoleon. It was getting harder and harder to pretend otherwise. The next two weeks following the June 1st spectacle were filled with feverish preparations for the campaign. The Allied armies were gathering in Belgium, and Napoleon was running out of time if he hoped to stave off a full-scale invasion of France. Tides of orders, dispatches, and letters flowed from the Tuileries Palace to the various army commanders, and columns of French troops were marching, some enthusiastically, most not, northward toward the frontiers of Belgium. 
On the night of June 11, 1815, Napoleon was up all night, seeing to the final preparations and making provisions for the running of the government in his absence. The Council of Ministers would look after things, under the eye of Napoleon's brother, Prince Joseph Bonaparte. At three o'clock in the morning of June 12, Napoleon, dressed again in his green military coat, got into his carriage, not the golden one this time, to head for his campaign headquarters at the Pas de Calais in northern France. In a very telling move, Joseph, his brother, handed him a sack of diamonds worth approximately 800,000 francs. You know, just in case. Napoleon gave the order, the carriage started rolling, and the final days of his reign had begun. They would soon end at a place called Waterloo. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also, check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like Dead Ideas, Human Circus, Art History Babes, Explorers, History in Hindsight, and Stuff What You Tell Me. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. And remember, my two novels coming out soon, Jake's 88 and Eyes of War. My historical sources for this episode include 100 Days, Napoleon's Road to Waterloo by Alan Sham, Athenaeum, 1992. I'm not as happy with this book as I'd like to be, but it gets the job done. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.